Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario is willing to build a shorter Hamilton LRT. That is, if the federal government covers the funding gap. Is LRT actually back on track in Hamilton? We'll talk about it. What are the four things the Ontario government should be doing to ensure a safe economic reopening? Dr. Michael Warner joins us with the details. And senators are getting ready to hear opening arguments in the Trump impeachment trial today as Donald Trump fumes over the way his legal team has acted so far. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to focus in on a Hamilton story that's been going on for quite some time, and that has to do with light rail transit. Now, I know in London, of course, they've talked about the bus rapid transit and about increasing transit. Every community is trying to do this in one way, shape, or form. And the catalyst for the Hamilton debate has been uh, light rail transit uh, and the desire by Mayor Eisenberger and a number of people on council to move forward with a project like this. Uh, It was, uh, I guess, given a big boost a a couple of years ago, a few years ago, when then-Premier Kathleen Wynne came into Hamilton and uh, promised uh, $1.1 billion, I think it was, dollars. Uh, they said to build and operate an LRT, and, of course, people were just giddy that, that were supportive of that. Well, there was a change of government, as you know, and uh, the Ford government has been consistent through this. They said there's a billion dollars on the table for transit, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the mayor and, uh, and a number of people in this community have been pressuring uh, the premier to make a commitment for light rail transit. And uh, yesterday, well... They sort of kind of did. Uh, the basic of, of the crux of the announcement here was that their $1 billion is still on the table, but by their numbers, uh, that billion dollars is only going to build an LIT system from McMaster University in the West End to about Dundurn, which is uh, maybe halfway between there and downtown. As a, my Irish relatives used to say, it's a good stretch of the legs, but it's hardly worth a billion dollars to build something like this. However, they do say if the federal government kicks in $1.5 billion, they can make it a much longer route to uh, maybe the east end of the city, not all the way to uh, Eastgate Square like they planned. So is, is this a good news announcement or what? Uh, Donna Skelly is the Flamborough-Glenbrook Conservative MPP, and uh, she says her government is standing by the $1 billion commitment toward this project. The cost of that, however, exceeds the billion dollars. It's about $2.2 to $2.5 billion. So we are simply saying we will go as a government to the federal government and ask them to contribute. Handoff. Here we go. Feds, what's up to you guys? And, and again, you know, t- to that point, I know there have been discussions ongoing with the federal government for a, a number of years right now, and their answer always is, yeah, we're very interested as soon as we see a firm proposal. I don't know if this is a firm proposal. I don't know what the, the rationale or what the criterion is for this. So are we any further ahead? A number of people that have commented about this already in the community are, are, well, getting mixed messages, I think. I want to bring Larry DeAnne into the conversation. Larry, of course, is a former mayor for the city of Hamilton. And, uh, Larry, first of all, thanks for joining us. Good to have you back on the program today. Uh, what do you make Mike? of the announcement? Go ahead, Larry. But, well, um, the uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, this story, the LRT story for Hamilton is like, is like all my children, you know, the soap opera that's been on for 40 years. And, and every once in a while, you, you check in. Um, it's always intriguing, but the plot never moves forward. Yeah. It seems. And, and that's where, you know, it's, it's on again, off again, on again, off again, and now I guess it's on again, maybe. Maybe. So, so uh, I was at, the, uh, at, at uh, the announcement that former Premier Wynne made at McMaster University. Mm-hmm. It was actually a $1.3 billion oh, one, three, okay. pledge. But that included, though, Bill, you're right, that, that included uh, the, uh, the GO train um, on, on Highway 20. Uh, so yep. a couple hundred million dollars for that. 
So, so here's my take on it. I mean, um, you know, the, the provincial government has put it back on the agenda, and, and those who support the program should be pleased about that. At least it's on the agenda with the, uh, with the provincial government's blessing to the tune of a billion dollars, which is not chump change. Um, however, uh, there is a little bit of sleight of hand here because uh, they're going to the federal government, uh, but not as a standalone request. It's one of five requests. In fact, I think well, I saw one of the releases that it's their fifth request for infrastructure funding for provincial projects, $28 billion in total uh, or so. And so uh, how hard uh, is it going to be fought for by the province, uh, given that it's a fifth um, a proposal or at least a fifth request? Um, now, what we've got going for us at the federal level is that uh, Minister McKenna, a Hamiltonian, uh, who's in charge of the infrastructure money, uh, has been very supportive of LRT for Hamilton, and she's on the record as that. Uh, and, uh, and we have uh, a cabinet minister um, in, uh, in uh, cabinet from Hamilton as well, who may fight for it. We have a member, uh, another liberal member, who's, not, who's ambivalent about the project. Uh, but at least we've got some cabinet strength. And so the question is, is it worth spending all of that money? As, as one of the counselors said, you know, uh, half the route for double the cost, is it worth spending all of that money uh, for a truncated version of the LRT? The diehards would say yes. Those who want to see at least shovel in the ground as a first step would say yes but the opponents and some of them around the council horseshoe are saying hang on a minute we signed up for something that's not being delivered we need to look at it again which may be code for let's just kill this and let's go with bus rapid transit which will be a little more comprehensive not as intrusive maybe not as controversial and it'll still give hamilton some public transit that we deserve. All right, let me put this in context for you, because just as you and I began our conversation, uh, the Prime Minister and uh, Minister McKenna uh, are making a, an announcement up in Ottawa, uh, and you just mentioned the fact that this Hamilton project, such as it is, is one of five different asks that the provincial government has had toward the Fed, totaling about $28 billion. The government announcement right now is $15 billion in transit projects across the country. All right? That's not that's a little bit, about half of what Ontario wants, but it's supposed to be for the whole country. So we just moved a whole lot further down on the pecking order, Larry. I mean, this, you know, the, the money that people think is available is just not going to be available. Uh, and I know what's going to happen now. The province is going to say, well, we stuck by our word. We, we've got the billion dollars on the table. But they knew full well there's no way that the federal government's going to dedicate that kind of money to one project in Hamilton. And not, not when every other city, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, and, and others, are crying for this kind of money. Well, and that's why I said that there was uh, some potential sleight of hand going on, because now the province can say, hey, wait a minute, we, uh, we are, are true to our word, we've got a billion dollars, there you go, it's on the table, uh, and, um, and therefore uh, we've, uh, we've lived up to our political commitment, uh, knowing full well that it's not enough. Now, there is, there is a bit of a, an ace in the hole, if you will, um, um, with, with this project, and that's the third party, uh, Leuna, that said that it's willing to pony up a couple hundred million dollars or $250 million 
um, uh, for for the LRT project. And I know that uh, Leuna is very close to, to Mr. Ford. I think Joe Mancinelli, uh, who heads up uh, our local Leuna, uh, is um, is uh, frequently called upon uh, for advice uh, on on different matters. And Ford values that. It's perhaps the only union or one of the very few unions that supports this provincial government. And so uh, they are coming not tap in hand. They're coming with a, you know, a, uh, a cash load of, uh, of money uh, that uh, they're going to put towards the project and then negotiate what they, how they get that money back for their members. Uh, so that may be helpful. So, uh, you know, it's going to take some skillful negotiations on the part of the mayor. He's going to have to bring his council together so that they speak. Um, they are of one mind. It's going to take some skillful negotiations um, at the federal level uh, with our federal minister and our MP uh, that um, may try to pry a little more money uh, for the Hamilton project. Uh, and then it's going to ha- have to take some, some honesty and some transparency on the part of the Ford government that uh, they're sincere about wanting to support this project. Uh, even though it's one of five asks that they're making at the federal level. Yeah, uh, exactly. So. And, and by the way, I think three of the other five are all in the, in the GTA uh, for projects, uh, which, of course, is home turf for the, for the premier and, f- and for a lot of other folks in that government. So, I mean, you've got to weigh that, too. Let's, let's talk about the here and now, though. Uh, we already talked about the fact that, you know, what the government, the federal government just announced today is nowhere near unless, you know, I, they're not going to put 1.5 of only 15 into one project in Hamilton. So that's a, I, I, I applaud Joe Mancinelli. I've had Joe on the program many times about his commitment to, to light rail transit, and it's going to be great for Leuna, of course, because of construction jobs. And Joe sees, Joe, the Mancinelli's in Leuna have always had this vision for Hamilton. They understand the economic uh, development impacts that can happen in situations like that. But we have to look at these numbers right now. There's two things that jump out at me. First of all, there's not enough money on the table. That's one. Second, this whole idea about McMaster to, to Eastgate Square from one end of the city to the other is pretty much dead in the water because nobody's offering enough money to do that right now. So I, I think we, we've got to make an admission that if, if you're an LRT advocate, uh, you better start to compromise because you're not going to get what you want. And that's going to change an awful lot of people's opinions. The other one that I want to get you to comment on is uh, from your time as mayor and your many, many years on Stony Creek Council, you know all about setting municipal budgets. Uh, it was just reminded or reiterated yesterday by this policy paper that came out from the provincial government that the operating cost estimated to be about $30 million annually, that's the city's responsibility. And I, a number of people on council, Larry, have already said, we'll support this, but as long as not one red cent from taxpayers' money goes to this. It's not going to be one red cent. It's going to be $30 million every year. I, I think that's going to change a few people's opinion on council. Well, and I've said right from the beginning that, um, um, you know, th- Hamilton councillors who think that they're going to get a project like this free without paying one red cent are living uh, not a, in the real world but in a fantasy world. Absolutely. It's obviously going to cost money. Now, here's the reality, though, that, um, um, you know, there is a fare box um, that will contribute towards that operating cost. Uh, and, of course, this is where negotiations have to happen with Metrolink says to who's going to be in charge of that fare box, who's going to reap the benefits of it, and, uh, and therefore, who's going to have to pay for the ongoing uh, costs of operating the system. But at the end of the day... 
those who support LRT uh, need to also be honest with the residents of Hamilton in terms of what it's going to cost the residents of Hamilton. And that will for sure complicate things because there are still some supporters uh, around that horseshoe who have said the only reason I'm supporting it is that it's something we're being given that's not going to cost us anything. So they're going to have to revisit all of that. What are the actual costs, even maybe at the end of the day, to, uh, to, the, uh, to, to the hard costs uh, of the infrastructure, uh, but also the soft costs in terms of the yearly operating costs. And then you've got to f- uh, factor in as well, <clears throat> what, <clears throat> excuse me, what is this economic uplift that we're going to get uh, that's going to put money back into the coffers? And that needs to be part of the discussion also. So it's not all expense, but there will be some return on that expense as well. But it's, it's a complicated uh, factor. And you know what? The, maybe the more I talk about it, the more the analogy to all my children is quite apt. We're going to be at this, we're going to be at this for quite some time more. Well, and you, you know from the Red Hill Valley uh, and Expressway debate, the Lincoln, as it turned out, uh, that only went on for, what, 48 years. Uh, so I, I'm anticipating a long, lengthy road here. But one of the other elements to that, of course, is for every year that this thing is delayed, the price goes up. I, mean, I don't know whether or not Kathleen Wynne's liberals were accurate when they said $1.3 billion was going to build you this LRT. But the numbers that this government's giving us that some years later is that $1.1 billion uh, is going to get you from here, not even to downtown, over to the Fortinos on Dundurn Avenue. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's a 15-minute walk from the campus. So why did you need an LRT? It, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, and that, that's another one of the political ironies of course that you know the provincial government came along and they uh, and they pulled the rug on this program and uh, you know literally years have now passed uh, at least we're approaching that and of course costs escalate so they've caused the cost overrun to some extent at least uh, and are only sticking with the original pledge that was made way back when the costs were a little cheaper um, but, you know, it was ever thus that governments will find a way of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, making their point uh, and sticking to it, even when it doesn't fully make sense. Uh, one final word. I know we're just about out of time here. I'm just getting some more information about the federal announcement that's happening as you and I are talking. Uh, one, $15 billion in public transit to support subway expansions and help municipalities electrify their bus fleets. Uh, I don't know how LRT fits into that, but I guess that's part of the negotiation. Larry, as you said, uh, as it is with uh, watching Erica Kane and, and, and all my children or anything else, uh, this, the saga continues, and there's more to come on this, so I'm sure we'll talk about this again. But thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Take care. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany. Uh, and like I say, I don't think we're any further ahead on this. I know that uh, the uh, the advocates, the Chamber of Commerce and, and Mayor Eisenberger and others say they are cautiously optimistic. Uh, but I don't see the money on the table. And if uh, you don't have the cash, uh, not a whole lot's going to happen here. And I don't know if anybody's comfortable with the fallback position of bus rapid transit, which is what London and, and other cities are, are, are looking at right now. So 
We'll see. The, the, the debate will begin, I'm sure, in earnest now that uh, we kind of know where these governments are going to stand on this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We know, of course, that on Monday, uh, Premier Doug Ford announced uh, what he called a gradual reopening of the Ontario economy, easing some of the restrictions of the lockdown that's been in place for the last four weeks. Uh, and it's got mixed reaction, quite frankly. Uh, a lot of business folks are, shall we say, cautiously optimistic. Uh, but a number of people in the medical field, the experts, are saying, uh, you know, th- there's still some things to be concerned about. Uh, the Hamilton uh, Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, says there's still good reason to be cautious about reopening, uh, citing things like community spread of the U.K. variant and slow vaccine rollout, but adds that reopening is ultimately up to the province. As you've heard me said, I'm I would be looking at something on the more conservative side rather than the uh, than going forward gung ho. But um, we'll look at it and uh, and give input where we can and and discuss it with our colleagues and hear their perspectives and they'll hear ours and the the province will make their decision at the end of the week. Well, they seem to have made the decision on this, and as I say, it's a gradual reopening, a phased-in reopening, whatever phrase you want to use on that. But again, uh, a number of people that we've heard from in the last little while in the medical profession uh, are suggesting, look at, uh, let's think this thing through before we just go whole hog into this. Uh, one of those is uh, Dr. Michael Warner. Uh, Dr. Warner, of course, is the head of ICU with uh, Michael Garrett Hospital, uh, and always a welcome guest on the program. Doctor, great to have you back on the show. Hope you're doing well these days. Uh, thanks for having me, Bill. Good to be back. Saw your tweet uh, about what you would like to see the government at least consider in situations like that, uh, and it's, uh, I, I thought, a well-thought-out presentation about exactly what we should be doing. Maybe we should go over that list so our listeners get an idea as to, uh, as to where your head is on this. Sure, yes. I mean, rather than just being critical of the government, I wanted to provide them with a kind of a framework about what I think needs to be done as preconditions to economic reopening. So I think the first thing is to make sure that the most vulnerable people in society are vaccinated. There's been the the vaccine rollout hasn't gone as planned, and and it's not a blame game. The vaccines haven't been here. Uh, Once they get here, we need to get them distributed to all long-term care home and retirement home residents and all those elderly, frail people who are living at home, which is actually where most elderly people live. Whether or not they have caregivers coming in and out of the house. Those are the people who are getting sick and dying, so we need to make sure they're vaccinated. Uh, number two, uh, paid sick leave just needs to happen, Bill. Like, we can't have the, pro- the provincial government and the federal government batting this back and forth because the part-time workers who are at distribution centers around airports in Peel Region and other essential workers don't have paid sick leave so they can take time off to get a COVID test and isolate while they're waiting for the results. The, the recovery benefits that are available are not available in those circumstances, so people are going to, sick, uh, going to work sick. And many of my patients in the ICU are essential workers who either acquired their COVID-19 infection at work or um, got it from a family member um, who, um, who has COVID-19. And number three, and I think this is probably the most important, we need to actually understand whether school reopening is safe. I, I think school reopening does make sense. But at least in the hot zone regions of Toronto, Peel, and New York, uh, the economy is going to be open on February 22nd based on what was announced, and schools open six days prior to that. So if you have increased community spread thereafter, it will be impossible to know what the root cause of that increase in community spread is. Is it because schools may not be as safe as we thought, or is it because the entire economy has been opened and all non-essential businesses are open? Uh, that that needs to be, I think, spread out a little bit more. We need to open schools, give some time, evaluate, and then think about economic reopening. And then finally, we talk a lot about providing beds for COVID patients in ICUs and in hospitals, but there's a silent pandemic or epidemic rather of non-COVID care that's gone deferred and delayed. And uh, whether that's breast screening, breast cancer screening for women or uh, colon cancer screening for all patients or cancer surgeries themselves, 
Uh, things just aren't happening, and I haven't seen any plan about how to get through that backlog. And ICU still have 350 patients with COVID-19 in Ontario today, and we're so uh, far away from catching up with the backlog that uh, occurred because of Wave 1, and I'm just concerned that there's no plan to tackle the backlog that's subsequent to Wave 2. I'm going to go through a couple of these, uh, if you don't mind, Doctor. We'll start with the, the vaccination program. Uh, and you're right. I mean, I, I don't want to start pointing fingers. I know it's, it's you know, fair game and it's very sporting, I guess. That's the, the sport of the week now is to blame this government and that government. But the vaccines just aren't available. But the, the rollout program itself, I mean, for the vaccines that have been delivered, uh, I'm hearing an awful lot of complaints from people uh, that or have loved ones in long-term care facilities or who work there that said, you know, they're not reaching us. Uh, you know, we, we thought we were supposed to be at the front of the line and we're still waiting. Uh, th- there seems to be some confusion about exactly how to attack the problem. It's, you know, that's not my end of things in terms of how they're to be deployed. I think we have to make sure that they're going in the arms of actual frontline staff and people who are vulnerable, not board members or family members or yeah. board members, etc. I mean, that's a political hot potato. So, But I think while we're waiting for the vaccines to get here, Bill, there's lots that we can do. So just I just want to talk about what we did at our hospital, Michael Guerin in Toronto, yeah. where we've vaccinated uh, you know, all of our long-term care residents. Before the vaccines landed on our shores, we had pre-consented all the long-term care home residents. We'd gone to spoke, spoken to them or their substitute decision-maker, given them information. So once we had the needles, they just went into the arms of those who wanted the, the vaccines. You know, why, why isn't the government doing that now for everybody, providing those with you know, legitimate questions of vaccines with appropriate information, registering people to get vaccinated, going through the consent process now so that once everything's here, the needles go in arms. Our family doctors being educated about the computer systems they're going to need to use to keep track of these vaccines once they're deployed in the community. There's lots of groundwork that we can do now while we're waiting, and, and I truly hope that starts getting done soon. Uh, the paid sick leave, I agree with you totally. I think you and I have talked about that in the past, and, and I've actually talked to all federal and provincial uh, representatives about that. There is a federal program, as I'm sure you're aware, Doctor, but I mean, I think you have to be off for four or five days before you even qualify for it, uh, which puts you kind of in the netherworld for a period of time, so that, that's got to be shored up, uh, and I hear they're talking about it. The school reopening is is, uh, is always going to be contentious, uh, because there are those who just think that, you know, it's it's a, a petri dish for the infection, even if the kids themselves aren't showing it, they can be asymptomatic and take it home to some multi-generational families or parents, etc., and they can suffer from this too. Uh, and and that, that's going to go on. I don't know if there's ever really any data here that shows one way or another about, about this. But is this a perfect storm of saying we're going to open up retail and send the kids back to school pretty much in the same week in most parts of the province right now? Uh, is it inevitable that we're going to see a spike? Well, let, let's say we're at an inflection point in the pandemic where, you know, the number of positive cases is going down, the pressure in hospitals is easing slightly. I mean, that's all great news. But we also have the variants of concern that are swirling around and spreading the community. I can't see a situation whereby numbers will get better uh, when schools and retail reopen, you know, six or seven days apart. That's, that's pretty inconceivable to me. So then when that happens, when cases increase, say, from 1,000 a day to 1,500 per day, just using round numbers, how are we ever going to know why those case numbers went up if you have two variables changing at the same time, you know, all non-essential retail opening, albeit with capacity restrictions, and all schools reopening? And, and I think this is important in the high population centers of the greater Toronto-Hamilton-Niagara region. I mean, it may make sense to open both in eastern Ontario, where there's very little COVID activity. But as we know, there's tons of COVID activity where you're you know, speaking from where I live in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
that's where most people live. It, I don't know how public health is going to disentangle the data, and uh, my guess is they won't be able to. And then the government will have to have a decision about what to close or slow down or shut down first, and, and we're back to where we started. So I just don't think it's a smart way to do things. Well, and the concern that I'm expressing, and, and I'm on the same page with you on this one, Doctor, is, you know, I, I don't want to set ourselves up to fail. And, I mean, you know, this is uh, the second time we've gone through this, the second time we've tried to come back out of a lockdown. Uh, we didn't do it very well the first time. I think, you know, the the weather was on our side. Of course, we did it heading spring into summer uh, where the virus was not as active as it had been in the winter months. So I think that was on our side, and that might have given us a false sense of security. Uh, I don't think we want to fall back into, a, as, as the Toronto Medical Officer of Health explained, and I know you saw that media conference the other day too, uh, that we could be heading for a third wave uh, you know, as a result of, of these actions right now, putting the kids back in school, uh, you know, the retail opening up, albeit, as you say, with restrictions that I'm sure most people are going to comply with but the the wild card in this is what dr richardson and hamilton said and others have said doctor are the variants uh there's three of them so far and they're starting to crop up here in ontario and uh you know is i I don't know that that's been factored into this right now that's you know it's like saying i think we've got the fire under control but you know there's a a gasoline leak over here but i'm sure it's not going to be a factor well it could be Uh, we don't know yet do we uh, we don't know. Well, for, we need to drive the number of cases down because it's important for the listeners to understand these variants only come up as they evolve within hosts who have COVID-19. So the fewer cases you have, the fewer patients with COVID, the less opportunity there is for variants to kind of evolve within a host and then spread from person to person. So you know, my view is that if you get us, we're getting down close to a thousand cases a day, let's, let's just snuff this out. Let's pound it into the ground. And then we can start about safe, talking about safe and sustainable reopening. This going back and forth, I mean, listen, I, I think actually most individual store owners, entrepreneurs, business people are more aligned with protecting their employees and their retailer and their, uh, than their customers than perhaps big box stores. So I actually don't have a problem with individual store owners. I think they're probably going to do a great job at protecting the public. But the challenge, Bill, is, is that as soon as we open up all non-essential businesses, the mobility data will show that people are moving around, and when people move around, they interact more. And these variants of concern are almost certainly more transmissible, which is how we could get back to you know where we started. So it's it's a really tough spot for these business owners who I think almost you know without exception are going to be responsible. But pe- as soon as people start moving and interacting, COVID will follow. So I, I think it just makes more sense to get our numbers down further, understand how school reopening is going to impact everything, and then get our vulnerable people vaccinated. The people who end up in hospital and dying, get them vaccinated so the pressure on the healthcare system is less. And then we can start about, start talking about having control over COVID instead of COVID having control over us. You keep talking, and, and I'm glad we had this discussion about the mental health impact that this pandemic has had. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just concerned, Doctor, about the, the mental health impact of a third wave would have. And I'm not suggesting it's inevitable, but, you know, if we see spikes again like this again and, and the education minister and, and the economic development minister have to go back and say, all right, we're shutting it down again, this is out of control again, uh, what does that do to the psyche of the population? Oh, I'm sure there are people who are ready to throw in the towel. I mean, this is hard. It's been a year, um, and none of us have had to deal with this before, and I think that uh, even I feel that sometimes, like enough is enough. But we can't change the circumstances we find ourselves in, and collectively, I think 
it's a time to come together as a community and coalesce instead of kind of dividing into camps of we should open this, we should do that, we should do this, we should do that. You know, my life is more important than your life, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that hopefully it can be a galvanizing experience as opposed to a divisive one. We also have to consider the mental health of people who work in the hospitals. And I'm not necessarily talking about doctors. I'm talking about all the other people who are sure. kind of the unsung heroes because they're pretty beaten down. I mean, this, this is such a grind and uh, the people are running out of gas and, um, you know, nursing vacancies are not necessarily being filled. The people left behind are working that much harder. And uh, you know, imagine dealing with COVID 24-7 at your workplace. Then when you leave the hospital, it, that wears people down as well. And also, we're, we also see that lots of non-COVID-related care is not happening. And that weighs on healthcare workers as well. Well, and, and I'm glad that was your fourth point uh, in, in the treat that we saw about the healthcare system itself and the capacity. Uh, unless you walk through the doors of one of those facilities or have somebody that you know, a loved one or somebody uh, who works in any one of those capacities, whether it's support staff, uh, frontline workers, whatever the case might be, uh, it's out of sight, out of mind. Most of us don't give a whole lot of consideration. We hear the statistics about the number of people in ICUs, et cetera, but the, the pressure on the system itself, uh, I, I understand, as you say, the numbers are down, so it's easing a little bit, but that's a rather tenuous. I mean, that could change in in the space of just a couple of days if we start seeing new new cases coming in, especially with some of these new variants. Well, I think, you know, the people who don't work in the hospital, I mean, I see it on social media telling me that my hospital is empty and that uh, hospitals have lots of capacity. I mean, sure, uh, I'd love for you to tell me that if you walked in my shoes. But, you know, hospitals are, are, are working, people are working very hard. People are still being, patients rather, are being moved across the province from ICU to ICU because of capacity restrictions. And we're not, we're not taking care of all the patients who need to be, who need care right now. Uh, so the, the, the hospital system is still under tremendous stress. And people talk about the system as it's some type of inanimate object. But there are people who work within the system. And there are also people who need the system. And... Uh, you know, the emotions of those people can't be forgotten. The fatigue of those people can't be forgotten. And um, once COVID kind of peters off, we're still going to have to catch up with all the care that has been deferred and delayed. So it's going to be a, a, a long road for healthcare workers. And I think this, you know, we've got great support from the public, which is wonderful. But, uh, you know, if you know a healthcare worker, whether in the, their custodial staff, a nurse, a PSW, et cetera, you know, check in with them they're doing okay because it's uh well, they're, they're fortunate to have jobs as am i but uh, it's still very difficult work and we're seeing a lot of deaths i mean bill last week in five days i lost nine patients with covid19 in my icu and uh and you know the numbers are going down for two reasons cases are going down but also people are dying so we can't forget the people that are dying too and, and that's something that has to be front and center with us right now. I just don't want to get caught in a false sense of security. Say, oh, the numbers are down. We're in pretty good shape here. Uh, and and a part of it is is on us. I mean, you know, we can blame governments all we want for the, there's no vaccines or there's this or there's that or what about this restriction. Uh, but the tools that we have as individuals that uh, that we've been told about since well last February now about hand washing, about social distancing and and, and masking. And as a matter of fact, uh, now now they're talking about possibility of wearing two masks at least uh, to try to curb this. I mean, there are things that we can do to, 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 if not control those numbers, at least have an impact on them. It's interesting. Uh, today I, you know, I learned that my hospital, in addition to pr providing masks for visitors, not, medical masks, not cloth masks, we're going to be providing face shields for visitors because the variants of concern are more transmissible. So the science does evolve, and I think that can be hard for the public to 
understand sometimes because it may give people the perception that doctors and scientists don't know what they're doing, but the truth is we're learning in real time, and as we learn, it's being magnified on social media. So it, it doesn't necessarily, necessarily re- represent incompetence. It represents uh, learning and acting in real time. And uh, I think, that, you know, if you think of where everyone was a year ago and where they are now, we've had to learn a whole new way of interacting and living and, caring and protecting ourselves, and it, it points to how adaptable humans are. And uh, I think that the public health measures that we have today will likely be in place for a while longer, you know, months, maybe even more than a year, uh, and uh, to some degree. It doesn't mean we'll be in lockdown for a year, but it means that, you know, not shaking hands and wearing a mask in public when you can't distance and and physical distancing, etc., um, could be with us for a long time. So I think it is the new abnormal that uh, that we'll have to get used to for a long time. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that the government heeds some of the advice that you've given, and I know many of your uh, colleagues uh, in the industry are doing the exact same thing here, too, and uh, we need to be cautious about this and, and very cognizant, I guess, of, of the realities about how quickly this can change. Uh, always a pleasure uh, for your time, Doctor. I know how busy you are at the hospital these days. Uh, please continue to stay well, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Okay. Thanks for the time. Take care. Great talking with you. Dr. Michael Warner, the head of ICU at uh, Michael Guerin Hospital in the uh, GTA. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a uh, very important day in Washington yesterday. Donald Trump's impeachment, part two, I guess his second impeachment, of course, in a little more than a year, got underway yesterday in earnest with some, well, opening statements, I guess, more than anything else. Uh, Both the House representatives that were putting this trial on and, of course, the uh, legal team that are representing Donald Trump uh, both had their say at the podium. And uh, by all reports, uh, Donald Trump is not happy with his lawyer's performance, and Republican senators are also bashing them. Sagar Morgani's got some details for us. The ex-president watched the debate from his Florida club and was furious with his team, though Bruce Castor defended himself. I thought we had a good day. GOP senators, though, are ripping his meandering showing. Couldn't figure out where he was going. I thought I knew where he was going, and I really didn't know where he was going. I don't think it was uh, very persuasive. It was disorganized, random. Louisiana's Bill Cassidy called it a terrible job and was the sole Republican who voted against pursuing the trial last week to flip this time. 56 senators in all voted to move ahead. 67 are needed for a conviction. Sagar Magani, Washington. Let's uh, bring uh, Professor Wayne Petrosi into the conversation. Professor Petrosi, of course, to the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Uh, Professor, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, you're welcome. Please, please. Uh, your impressions of, uh, of what we saw in that, that very important day yesterday? Well, it, it certainly was a, a bad performance by the president, a former president's counsel. But on the other hand, one has to keep in mind uh, the, the scope of the challenge they face. They really do have to turn a sow's ear into a silk purse. And uh, that's much easier said than done. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, the the presentation by the House committee uh, was 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 excellent. It was focused. Uh, it didn't ramble, and uh, they made the point that insurrection is uh, something that has to be taken seriously by this Senate. We'll get back to the Republican guys in just a couple of seconds here, but let's talk about the the presentation. Uh, and, and the lead on this, of course, is Representative Jamie Raskin. Uh, we know that Alice, of course, uh, was the, uh, the the lead for the uh, the Democrats during the last impeachment. Uh, a different approach, I thought a more impassioned approach by uh, Representative Raskin yesterday. Yes, I, I think what they're setting the table for is to 
really put on record not just what happened, but ultimately how the Republican senators are going to vote on it at the end of the day. They're leaving no ambiguity, no, this was a, a, an insurrection, plain and simple, instigated, promoted by the then President of the United States, and they just want the public to have a very clear understanding of what took place and be in a position to cast judgment on the senators when they ultimately cast their deciding votes. The constitutional element of this, such as it was, was was discussed, and of course there was a vote on that, and uh, a, a number of Republican senators, a handful of Republican senators, actually sided with the Democrats and said, yes, that this trial should go forward in situations like that. Does that mean, though, Professor, that they, the, the Republicans and, and those in the Senate, for that matter, too, uh, give up that element? I mean, are they still going to throw their hands up and say this is uh, unconstitutional, we shouldn't even be here, or is that fight over? Well, you know, we have to keep in mind this isn't a, a, a criminal trial, and, and these senators can make their decisions based on whatever they decide is the basis, uh, should be the basis of the decision. So, notwithstanding the fact that there's no merit legally to the argument that this is unconstitutional, I think by all, they're going to have to stand by that simply because there isn't, there's not, not much else to hold on to. Yeah, I, and I know there's some rationale to that. I was listening to some of the commentators last night uh, talking about that, and uh, you know the, the argument that well, you can't really you know impeach a president who's out of office. Uh, it, they're only doing it now that he's out of office because Mitch McConnell and the Republicans wouldn't allow it to happen before then. Uh, you know there was every opportunity for this to happen before inauguration day, and they they decided not to do it that way. So it's that's kind of like saying you know you kill your parents and then try to claim mercy because you're an orphan. I mean, it, it, there's not a whole lot of water to that argument, is there? No, there's, there, there, there's virtually no, no water to that argument, and it simply highlights the rank hypocrisy uh, by, the, uh, by the Republican senators. I, I'm guessing, just from what I watched yesterday, and some of the comments from some of the people involved in, in presenting the case yesterday, Professor, uh, that the, the goal, if not stated, but certainly I think implied, uh, yesterday was to try establish the, a clear line of consequence between uh, Donald Trump's rhetoric that day and, and days actually before that and the events that occurred later on that day uh, at the Capitol building. Uh, and uh, the highlight, of, of course, of that was, that was the audiovisual presentation, uh, a very uh, emotional uh, a couple of minutes that tied that in, uh, the way it was presented, and, and edited, you know, with the comments and then subsequently the actions that followed. Uh, they're trying to tie those two things together, and, and notwithstanding the fact that some of the Republicans are trying to pretend that they're two separate issues. How effective was the Democratic presentation in, in getting that done? Well, I, I think certainly the, their initial presentation of, if you like, a chain of causality uh, linking the uh, outlandish lies in the virtually thousands of times that those lies were repeated to the events leading up, I, I think establishes the initial case that, in fact, there's a link here. And at the, at the heart of this uh, conspiracy is the former president of the United States. I think what we'll see subsequently, and I understand they are going to introduce additional and apparently new evidence showing, in fact, deepening the connection between Trump and what took place on January 6th. 
And, and that's going to be fascinating. I mean, people that think that, well, that was their shot yesterday. That was the opening shot from, from what they're saying, that they have more information. And, and I guess testimony in situations like this. Uh, excuse the cynic in me, but, I mean, I guess the, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is this going to make any difference? Uh, there was one senator that pretty much flipped over yesterday and decided, yeah, you know, this is craziness and uh but they need a lot more than that for the for this to be an effective impeachment trial and to get the result that they want no uh, uh, for certain and, and and your cynicism is warranted and in part i think it's because much of the public when as they watch this unfold they be, their their mind wanders to that this is somehow a a criminal proceeding and, and that's certainly what the republicans would like you to believe because in a criminal uh, setting it has to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt and uh, that that's a difficult hurdle to get over. But in fact, it is a political process. The impeachment process laid out in the United States Constitution is a political process. And it's not bound by the rules of evidence that you find in criminal proceedings. And the jurors, or in this case, senators, similarly aren't bound in the way jurors uh, are extensively are in criminal proceedings. So by all means, uh, I think short of... Uh, President Trump issuing a a uh, press release announcing that uh, I I agree I am guilty and I urge the Senate to convict me. Short of that, uh, you're not going to get 11 more Republicans joining in to convict the the president, former president, former president at this stage, uh, and and that's going to be fascinating. But I, I I get the sense the Democrats are trying to paint some of those. Republican senators into a corner. In other words, they want them to declare that notwithstanding the violence here, notwithstanding the video that we just saw of those officers being beaten by the crowd, uh, that you still stand by Donald Trump. That's as if they want them to each make a written declaration like that. Some of them I don't think would be very uncomfortable doing that, the Rand Pauls and and the Lindsey Grahams and and, and that ilk. But uh, I'm wondering if a, a number of the other ones are rather skittish about this. Oh, they certainly are skittish, uh, and in fact, they are ultimately, it's, it's going to be a recorded vote at the end of the day when this process comes to a conclusion, and you can, you can rest assured that for, you know, there's a, a fair number, a number of Republican senators up for re-election in 2022, uh, this is going to haunt them. Uh, the, I can just see the, the, the uh, campaign ads that will be launched against them that will try to remind voters that these are the people who let this criminal walk free. And these are the people who lecture you about integrity and morality and honesty. So I, I, yeah, they are skittish. They have reason to be skittish. Uh, certainly the uh, polling indicates that a majority of Americans believe that what former President Trump did was, is impeachable and that he should be convicted. Well, the insincerity guy starts with the oath that they took, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, the senators, I paraphrase it, I haven't got it in front of me, but essentially saying I will be an objective juror and, uh, and, and make my judgment based on the evidence that's presented. Well, I'm listening to Rand Paul and Lindsey Graham and others say, I said, no, you're not. You've already made up your mind. You've publicly said this is how you're going to vote. You haven't heard a, a shred of evidence yet. So the, the, that hypocrisy begins right at the beginning of the process. It does, and, and you know their 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 stock response to 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 the to that criticism is that well, uh, the other fifty five have already made up their minds, so they're, they're trying to in a sense you know this kind of moral equivalency again, 
exit and Edwards, they want you to completely ignore that there is any evidence and treat each of the Senate's, senators' decisions as a priority to any evidence. And in fact, there's tons of evidence, and it's pretty damning evidence. And so it, it, there is no equivalence between the senators who voted that it's constitutional and the senators who said it isn't. I, I would be remiss if we didn't spend a little bit of time talking about uh, the Trump legal team uh, that made their presentation yesterday. Uh, one Bruce Castor Jr., uh, who I guess was uh, the main contributor, and to a lesser extent, David Schoen. Uh, for those who may not know, they're, they're late to the game, of course, because uh, uh, the Trump team either resigned or was fired, depending on whose story you want to believe, over the weekend. So these guys kind of jump into the breach at pretty short notice. Uh, but even the Republican senators were scratching their heads and saying, what are these guys doing? Uh, one of them actually, uh, I think, drew the analogy. It kind of looked like Joe Pesci's opening uh, statement in My Cousin Vinny, a movie from a couple of years ago, too. They just didn't seem to have the, the, the oomph and and. It, if it was the, the state of purpose here was to try to, to defend Trump and his actions like this, uh, I, I think it was a, a massive failure. Oh, it certainly was, and I think it's a consequence of, of several things. One, of course, you're right in pointing out just how recently they joined, they became counsel for the former president. I think, two, it, it speaks to the fact that uh, neither of them are noted for their knowledge and familiarity with constitutional law and for arguing constitutional law cases. And, and, and third, they have only so much to work with. And if your client insists that the election is at this point, at this point in time, the election was stolen, this is a massive conspiracy against me, I, and I, it's hard to figure out what exactly you should do as as their uh, counsel in terms of making their case it's interesting about that because i know they did plead you know we, we didn't have enough time to prepare i get that but as uh, as uh, we we heard from some of the other commentators uh, subsequent to this uh that they they presented three or four days ago the the, the prosecuting team in other words the, the senator the democratic senators uh what their game plan was going to be where they were going to go with the case i guess which is part, one of the things that you have to do it's part of the protocol uh and and as you know, we found out from some of the. All you had to do is read that to say, okay, counterpoint this, counterpoint that. They didn't even seem to be prepared for that. They didn't know where they were going. Well, I mean, to 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 uh, counterpoint the Democratic claim that uh, this was a uh, insurrection guided, directed, inspired by the former president, they would have had to one uh, go back over the ground about the election being stolen and Trump's claims that it was stolen and there was massive fraud and etc. And they, I think, and, and, and just couldn't go there. And, 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 they, and, and they would perhaps, I think, correctly perceive that had they gone there, they would have been savaged even more than what we've seen subsequently. Uh, you know, the, the other speak, uh, point that speaks to, as I said, their, their lack of, of familiarity with this area of constitutional law. As you know, they were heavily criticized when they submitted their written brief last week uh, and they invoked certain uh, a constitutional expert as, as someone providing evidence for their case, and he, the the so-called the not so-called the expert in, in 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 question denounced them for misrepresenting his views. In fact, he said he believes it's constitutional. So they 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 really did a poor job in terms of what preparation they attempted to do. 
And that's one of the, uh, I guess, subplots of this whole thing. Um, uh, as uh, Chuck Rosenberg, the former prosecutor, said on uh, MSNBC last night, uh, Trump has trouble getting lawyers uh, because, first of all, he doesn't pay them. If he doesn't like what they're doing, they don't get a penny from him. And and second of all, he wants to he wants to prosecute the case himself. The, the, yeah, I'm sure you heard the story over the weekend. The reason he and his his initial uh, pro, uh, legal team broke up is because Trump wanted to argue about whether or not the election was fair. And they said that's not what we're doing here. And and there, so there was a, a, obviously a disconnect there. I guess these guys will say do whatever Trump wants them to do right now. But it's, uh, uh, if this is day one of, of their performance right now, it's not going to go well. No, it isn't going to go well, and, uh, and fundamentally what, they're, what, they're, what he's counting on, Trump I'm referring to now, is that no matter how badly this goes, there will not be 67 votes to convict him, because mm-hmm. the Republicans will not break rank. And that is the inevitable part of this. Uh, the, as they say, they're playing not just to the Republicans, they're playing to the Americans, too. And uh, I guess public opinion is going to uh, be a factor, certainly not in the outcome of this uh, impeachment. But uh, as you say, the uh, the payback or the fallback or the buy it could actually happen two years from now during the midterm elections. Uh, and some of these people that are in that chamber right now are uh, running for re-election. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure to have you on. Great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, thank you. Have a good day. Pleasure talking with you. Professor Wayne Petrosi, of course, in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.